I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Okay, just about there. This is another bonus episode. This is highlighting the second most popular episode of 2023, almost to the top here recapping on the the most popular episodes of the year and this is episode 134 featuring chris and melissa bruntlett talking about urban vitality dutch cycling and the human case for fewer cars so chris was podcast guest number one if you go back listen i terrible hosting i will would will admit for myself so take that with a grain of salt if you go back and listen but yeah the first episode of future mobility back in early 2020 was with chris this episode, we bring in his dynamic wife, Melissa, and great discussion here around yeah, the human case for fewer cars and how you can do this, how you can build a mobility ecosystem that is not solely dependent on cars and what that means and the benefits and all, all that. So uh, fun discussion. Cool to see this. It's surprising, but cool, cool to see this as one of the most popular episodes of the year. Um, without further ado, yeah, you'll get the, the intro of the episode and the outro on the back end after I'm done talking here. So yeah, pre- appreciate you listening. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by two special guests, Melissa and Chris Bruntlett. This is a particularly uh, exciting and interesting episode for me. So Melissa, great having her on the show. I think we provided a ton and ton of value, but actually, so Chris, um, Melissa's spouse here, this is his second time on the show, and it's noteworthy because he was the first ever guest on the Future Mobility Podcast. So you go back and you check out episode one, you'll see a conversation with Chris Bruntlett. Um, if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend you do, despite the fact that uh, I'd like to think the show has come a long way since there in terms of in, um, in terms of quality. Chris provided a ton of value there, I think sets the stage pretty nicely here for the conversation. And uh, yeah, great to have Chris back and great to, to add Melissa to the mix here. So a bit of background. So uh, Melissa and Chris are co-authors of two books. The first, Building the Cycling City, The Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality. The second, Curbing Traffic, The Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives. And as I explain it, the first book, Building the Cycling City, is really about how do you 
how do you build a yeah, the, how do you build a cycling city? How, how do you build a transportation ecosystem in which people can get around on foot and it's accessible and people can get around on bike and, and other modes of transportation? The second one, curbing traffic, is, is really the why or why would you want to do that? And uh, interesting, so the, the day jobs. So Melissa works with Mobicon, a bicontinental mobility consultancy supporting the promotion of Dutch transport knowledge policy and design principles in countries around the world. And Chris is communications manager for the Dutch Cycling Embassy, where he uses his knowledge and passion to share practical lessons for global cities wishing to learn from the Netherlands' extraordinary success. So two Canadians here living in the Netherlands, as they have since before the first episode, before the pandemic started, and essentially taking the experience, the expertise from the Dutch and helping others around the world learn from that. And if you aren't familiar, the transportation ecosystems in the Netherlands almost across the board are noticeably different than most other western cities and particularly um, North America and in a lot of ways better so the question is where where have things been done that we can learn from as we seek to make safer more sustainable more effective and more excessive transportation ecosystems the things I cover on this podcast how can we learn from the Dutch the great work that's been done there to and apply it to other cities to, to spread the impact? So I'll leave it there for now. Awesome discussion. Please enjoy this conversation with Melissa and Chris Bruntlett. Today I'm joined by two special guests. We have Melissa and Chris Bruntlett. Melissa, Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be back, Brandon. Hi. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good uh, good lead in here. So anyone who's who's been around from the beginning of the Future Mobility Podcast early 2020 might re- recognize Chris, so the, the inaugural guest for the Future Mobility Podcast episode one. If you want to listen back to uh, to get get some background, and then Melissa, it's great to have you here for the for the first time. Uh, with that said, so assuming that not not everyone listening here probably has has had that has heard that first discussion. You guys mind giving kind of an intro, kind of who who, who are you and what, uh, what what's the work that you're doing? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so Chris and I are Canadians living in the Netherlands who started out as cycling advocates in Vancouver, BC, when we were living there. Uh, this was probably around the year 2010 or so. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, through a series of fortunate events. <laughs> Um, we, yeah, basically found ourselves becoming sort of global advocates for recycling and now um, mobility as a whole. And that led to writing two books. The first book published in 2018 called Building the Cycling City, the Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality. And then uh, following a move to the Netherlands in 2019, we wrote our second book, which came out in 2021, called Curbing Traffic, the Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives. Um, yeah, and every day we get to work, well, I get to work as a communications and engagement expert for a mobility consultancy here in the Netherlands that works in North America called Mobicon. And Chris wears a similar but different hat. <laughs> I'm the marketing communication manager with the Dutch Cycling Embassy, which is an arm of the Dutch government that uh, that helps cities around the world learn from the Netherlands in terms of best practice and expertise uh, in the field of cycling. So we're... Uh, we're not just advocating for these changes uh, on social media and in our books anymore. We're actually uh, in the room making it happen, which I think is uh, quite special. We 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 don't take that for granted for a moment to get paid to to live our passion and uh, try to 
fix these transportation systems and streets and cities that are well <laughs> not optimal <laughs> but it politically uh softly gently yeah and i think this is this is such an interesting topic right so it's so i i started the podcast because i was interested in what safe sustainable effective and accessible transportation looks like i, I didn't really and i don't even know if i now know what that means but like i, I didn't really know it was we had kind of a, a journey of okay what does it mean to develop an effective and a safe and a sustainable um mobility ecosystem and given the fact that I had you on, Chris, as my first guest, I had a theory that there was more to it than simply private use vehicles. But uh, I, I think that, that certainly over the, the two and a half years since then has, has come out as a key theme that simply improving our technology and improving the way electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, connected vehicles or whatever, like doesn't really solve the underlying issues of, of what we're trying to do here. So I'd be curious from from, from your perspective. So thinking back, I mean, it'd be interesting thinking back to when you started in in uh, in Vancouver, cycling advocates. Like, what what was the key premise that made you want to say, "Hey, this is something that we we believe in. We want to enact some change." And how has that evolved over time? Did you just did you nail it out of the gates, and you're like, "Hey, we we have a great feel of uh, <laughs> of what this looks like," or what have you learned along the way, and how has your perception evolved? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question, and I think it gets to the root of of uh, well our journey uh, to the point where we are today and, and the discoveries we've made along the way and how they've helped us evolve as advocates and professionals. I mean, we got involved in cycling in Vancouver because it was just how we got around the city. We weren't uh, necessarily environmentalists or, or uh, idealists. We just chose the bicycle because we happened to live in a city that was investing in infrastructure and uh, we wanted to live without a car to save our family some money. Vancouver was a very expensive city and continues to escalate in terms of its uh, its affordability. And, and um, yeah, the, the bicycle for us was a practical decision. And so that became the gateway to uh, a topic, a world uh, that eventually brought us to the Netherlands um, to look at the cycling and, and you know, uh, the infrastructure here is mind-boggling. You see oceans of bicycles at the at the train stations as soon as you arrive. But I don't think it was uh, until we'd been advocating for cycling for over a decade and we came to live in the Netherlands as, uh, as residents that we really appreciated what cycling does for a society um, to achieve bigger goals than just getting more people cycling. You know, it's it's about living in a built environment where people are prioritized, where uh, everyone has the right to participate in society and use their streets. Uh, and, and yeah, ideas, topics that are, are just more, more bigger, than, bigger than a single mode of transportation. And that's really what motivated us to write the second book was to explain all these benefits that l come with living in a low car city to virtually everybody that lives there from children to the elderly to women to people with disabilities um, that are generally excluded from a car dependent car dominated car based uh, mobility network and you know this isn't something that really had occurred to us when we started advocating for cycling uh, all those years ago it really took us coming to the Netherlands and seeing the end game 
the results of uh, decades of, of progressive and, and uh, comprehensive mobility planning to see what that looks like and how inclusive, intuitive, and uh, well, uh, enjoyable uh, that can that can be. And it's uh, well, as you've hinted, it's not about living in a world with smarter cars or cleaner cars. We do have to ultimately uh, make this push towards fewer cars. Uh, for many of the reasons that that uh, we we've, we've talked about and continue to talk about in our books and on our social media channels, I think yeah, for me the I mean, the, our journeys have been similar in some ways, but I think there's obviously an inherent difference of how I experience the city versus how Chris does, just based on my gender and and how I started was, um, I was predominantly working from home, getting around with two small children when we decided to make this shift into advocacy and my beginnings were just communicating to my friends, uh, peers, fellow moms or parents, how easy it was to get around by bike uh, in a city that made it made it easier uh, because Vancouver was on that journey. But over time, you know, it's it's just grown into so much more. And, you know, I've been speaking to a lot of women that are involved in mobility advocacy lately and all of us sort of talk about how we start out in one area and then realize it's such a it's so much bigger and there's so much more to it. And so in addition to sharing all of the learnings that come from living in a city that improves quality of life, it's also now trying to find ways to help people understand the empowering aspect, not just for women, but you know, like through the books, we were really focused on the empowerment of children, the empowerment of people with disabilities the empowerment of people that don't traditionally have the same access to mobility to get to work, to get to education. Um, and so I found, you know, over time, it's gone from just being someone who wanted to share with people their story of joy on cycling to, you know, so much more, so much bigger than that in terms of, you know, sharing the joys that can be achieved when we create more equitable streets. So, yeah, it started yeah. small. I don't think we hit it out of the park right away, but I think we were, it set us on the right path. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's an interesting, maybe something that I can relate to on a couple of levels. So one, it's, it's, it's certainly a parallel path to what I mentioned on, on the podcast here in that I, I thought I was maxed out at 10 episodes. I was like, yeah, there's probably 10 topics I can talk about. And I'm going to, now there's, yeah, there, there's so many things that I want to cover that I can't like the, this world is so complex and there's so much exciting work and also challenging work work to be done to, to make improvements. So I can certainly see how that evolves over time when you have a, an initial theory that grows. But then I think of my, and Chris, I touched on this before, but the uh, my wife and I did some a good amount of traveling over the last few years, and especially before the pandemic. And almost always, I say like the place I'd go back to, especially for a, a long time is, uh, so we were in Amsterdam primarily, but around there. And I have a hard time understanding why necessarily because like or like I don't know it's not the red light district or like the uninformed uh, <laughs> or whatever the, the recreational dr drug use or anything a kind of uninformed opinion that would have it but like if I if I really think I, it sounds silly but it's, it's just the fact that I could ride a bike and I got to see so much more of that city in the surrounding area than most of the other places that we travel to and I realized as a tourist, I was there for like a week. All right. I'm the the least important person in, in this mobility ecosystem. But even in that short little snippet, I got to experience a little bit of what, uh, of what that power looks like. And how do you think, so you mentioned these things of like how an accessible city, a biking city serves all these populations. I mean, it sounds too good to be true on this, on the surface, right? Like 
yeah, all right, great. People can bike around. Is it how, how, how do you answer that question? Or like, how do you, how do you explain? No, like this actually the way in which the city's built and the ecosystem does have a tremendous impact on the lives of the people who live within it. Yeah. I think our first response is always that it, it seems because so much of our content does focus on cycling uh, and that's, you know, that's, we started out as cycling advocates that that seems to be the message that we're promoting, but for us, like the bike is just part of a larger attention to detail around moving at a slower pace by creating more human scale transportation where, um, you know, the the bicycle or cycling isn't the only option. Um, you know, oftentimes in this space of cycling advocates, we get comments like cycling is elitist and it's not for everybody. And it forgets things like, you know, when you calm a street for cycling, you're also calming it for people on foot or people with different abilities that are getting around with uh, various adapted machines or using scoop mobiles or people with invisible disabilities where riding around on a bicycle is far less strenuous than walking and is connecting them to good public transportation. It's connecting them to the city center to do their shopping, meet up with friends and be social. And um, it's providing avenues for children to be physically active just in terms of getting around their cities and for our elderly to keep staying physically active. So it's, it's, it's a tool as a part of a whole transportation network that really makes <clears throat> makes it possible for anyone who wants to get on some sort of cycle. Uh, it makes it possible for them to get around safely, but then provide safer options for those that don't without really sacrificing their quality of experience. Yeah. And I think, I mean, children is a great place to start because it's where we all, all start our lives. And, and, and uh, it was one of our motivating factors for packing up and moving our family halfway around the world and, and taking our children away from their friends and family was we had gotten a taste of this lifestyle uh, when we'd spent five weeks here in the Netherlands and brought our kids here. And of course, it's in part the cycling infrastructure and their ability to navigate their, their city and their neighborhood independently, but also the traffic calming, the traffic circulation that's done here means kids can walk uh, in their own uh, community to the park, to the corner store, without the threat of car traffic um, that every parent has just come to accept as a reality in their city. And so um, through the traffic coming through the cycling infrastructure, you know, Dutch kids have this level of freedom and independence. They have this health and happiness um, that isn't seen in many other countries in the world because children are excluded from the streets. They're excluded from the mobility system. They're reliant on their parents to chaperone and drive them everywhere. Uh, and when they're given the dignity and respect uh, to travel by themselves as young as seven or eight years old, by the way, they can cycle to school or, or walk to the corner store. Um, they become healthier, happier. You know, they're, they're able to make mistakes and, and learn from their mistakes. They're able to become more resilient uh, children that are out of the watchful eye of their parents. And that leads on to being, you know, healthy teenagers and then healthy young adults and, and, uh, it breaks away from this pattern of helicopter parenting and constant supervision that we find ourselves in in other parts of the world. And so that's, I think, just one example of how, uh, you know, the, the street design and the mobility networks uh, improve the quality of life for a demographic that's generally excluded from a, a car-based uh, system. 
Yeah, that was one of the the chapters that stood out to me on um, curving traffic. Thinking, talking about, I think you coined them like indoor, and maybe not your your names, but indoor children and the backseat generation, which I guess two two different but similarly kind of you know, challenging situations that mm-hmm. kids can find themselves in if they if they don't have you know, roads outside that they can safely walk alongside and and get places. What else? Uh, were there any big kind of surprises or things that you think are underappreciated about? So, yeah, we talked about accessibility for, for ch- children. I mean, I think we talked a bit about um, kind of dis- disabled individuals and, and what that looks like, having them be able to participate in, in society in a different way. Um, anything else that stands out to you that maybe isn't appreciated about what we're missing out on as societies who are living in a predominantly car focused, you know, traditional North American city. Yeah, I think this the social the sociability that we've experienced since moving here. I mean, it's not like we know everybody in Delft, although Delft is a relatively small uh city. <laughs> a village that's like a city is that a lot of people or a city like a village is <clears throat> what a lot of people refer to it as. But the fact that because there's not a lot of noise from a lot of cars moving around because people are moving at a slower pace. It is not uncommon to say hello to practically everybody that you walk past. Uh, sitting on our front stoop, everyone that goes by will either just say hello or for eating lunch, we'll say, it's Maklik, so you know, enjoy your meal. Um, and there's this, I think it's something that's underappreciated by the Dutch, but something that surprised us, even living in a very... Um, welcoming community in Vancouver is moving here how like that nth degree in terms of people being very comfortable just speaking to neighbors and helping each other out and something that I think is we know is lost when our cities our streets are very busy with cars we become more antisocial we start hiding away and I think we knew that having visited here but I think the level at which it happened uh, has surprised us uh, happily surprised us. And connected to that, I think, is the larger question around mental health. And we spend an entire chapter exploring that in in curbing traffic is the impact that car-dominated cities have on our mental health because we need several things as as humans. Um, We need face-to-face contact, of course, with the social cohesion that Melissa's described. We need physical activity. We need an outlet to move our bodies, uh, to restore from stress uh, and and find spaces within the city, whether it's a park or a river or you know a forest where we can de-stress, restore ourselves, move our bodies uh, and, and, and get away from, um, well, the, the, the stressful jobs that we all lead and, and lives. And, our cities lack those spaces largely or access to those spaces um, because they're so choked with moving and parked cars. And so I think that's one thing we definitely came to appreciate during the pandemic was our ability to get outside on our bikes or on foot within the city, um, move our, 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 move our bodies in a, a socially distant way, but also meet some of our, our neighbors uh, access some of that nature and decompress from those endless Zoom meetings that we were all participating in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, yeah, the pandemic's brought brought to light this lack of restorative spaces, but also um, 
well, the, the benefits of living in a place with far fewer cars and, and what that can provide to us in terms of reducing instances of depression and other uh, mental illnesses. There's definitely uh, an underappreciated aspect there between mental health and the built environment that's, uh, we just feel like we scratched the surface of in, in that chapter. And how, how do you try to isolate or evaluate the, the impact of the transportation ecosystem in there, right? So, yeah, I mean, talking about friendliness of and sociability as well as mental health. Um, yeah, you can have some some good data of, yes, people in cities in the Netherlands, friendly. I mean, people could also say there's just the demeanor, right, of of the Dutch where you got friendly people who want to say, say hi to each other. But I, I have to imagine there's examples of, uh, of of ways to try to isolate this out. So, so where do you look for to show hey what what actually is the impact of having a more accessible transportation ecosystem? It's a great question. <laughs> there, I mean, the fact of the matter is, there's no quantitative research. All we can do is qualitatively okay, kind of data. Yeah. 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 So it's yeah one thing we we attempt to do is is to try to connect some of those dots ask some of those questions, but there really is no research uh, that that can draw a direct line between the Dutch being amongst the healthiest, happiest, most trusting society in the world in the cycling. And we're not naive enough to suggest that it is solely because of the cycling, but through, yeah, the anecdotes that we share about our experiences of our first year in the Netherlands and some of the academic research that we we did the people we spoke to. We try to thread that that needle and and make that narrative. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think we ask more questions than we ultimately answer, and and hopefully that provokes more research and for other people to do to try to draw those lines. Because right now the transportation world is so focused on things like efficiency and throughput and 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 you know capacity and level of service the level yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and but we're not having questions about you know diversity and and access and and participation in society and instead of counting we say this all the time instead of counting cars what if we counted trees or social uh interactions or you know children on that are using a street it's uh um yeah, questions that need to be to be asked, but unfortunately, the the traffic engineering profession in particular has become very simple in its task in moving cars, cars, cars uh, to the detriment uh, of every other mode of transportation and every other person that doesn't have access to a car. Yeah, a lot of it, I think, comes down to this sort of <clears throat> shifting the way we ask questions and the way we do research and uh, taking. A more qualitative approach definitely uh, is a way to do that. And I know that there are some researchers out there and some organizations that do take a more um, holistic approach in terms of qualitative, but it's even just asking the questions that are more values-based as opposed to numbers-based. I mean, we do need to know what the demographics of a, of a community are in terms of understand how they're moving. But at the very start, we should be asking people, what do you want your neighborhood to look like? What values do you have uh, not asking them do you need more parking because the average person will say of course i need more parking um but then but instead asking you know for you to have a high quality of life what needs to happen in your community and then you get the real answers from people of like well i want to be able to go out and associate with my neighbors i want my child to be able to walk to school i i want to be able to age in place and those don't happen if we don't ask those values-based questions 
Yeah, and this this is a not not a unique challenge, right? Of trying to find meaningful metrics, and I don't know it, it, even the question that I asked previously. I'm a I'm an engineer by by trade, and I think very analytically, right? So I'm looking for hey, where are the numbers to sh- to show something? But that that line of thinking often does lead to okay, let's let's find a number, let's find some metrics we can track. We got our scorecards, but you don't really answer the question of okay, do these metrics actually? add up to address the challenge that we're, we're trying to address here, which is in the way I defined it, putting together a safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation ecosystem. But how, so how, I don't know, someone, someone comes to you and whether they're in planning or, or whatever kind of the main function that you, that you might work with or um, advise, like, what, what does that conversation look like? How do you try to have someone change the way that they're, they're measuring success so that they can actually do the things and, you know, address the values rather than just the, the easy metrics. Yeah. I think that starts with asking the question back. It's like, what do you, what is it that you want to achieve here? Do you just want to make sure that cars move as efficiently as possible? Or do you want, are you looking to create a more sustainable system and what modes does that include? Because I think that's the very first thing to understand is if they're, there are cities that are putting together transportation plans that are simply looking at how do we connect people to the highways and freeways mm-hmm. as fast as possible. And we're not going to have a lot of impact with those people, but then you have the smaller communities that are like, well, we want to increase livability. We want to increase active mobility. And then you start having a larger question. Okay, well, <laughs> to do this, these are some things that you might want to consider. And you start having a, a dialogue I think is is the very first place to start. And the the one thing, the one point that uh, Dr. Bridget um, Burdett made during uh, one of our interviews was, and, and we've taken this to heart, is uh, starting to try and measure and quantify the trips that people aren't taking, uh, which I think is an interesting thought exercise because, again, we're so focused on existing travel patterns and the way that people are currently moving from A to B, we seldom stop to ask, well, what about people that aren't making certain journeys because it's unsafe, uncomfortable, or inconvenient, whether it's because of the lack of public transport service or it's dangerous or unsafe. Um, And what can we do to facilitate those trips? We tell the story of uh, Delft's uh, cycling network, which was designed and built in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And one of the key strategic pivots they made was to talk to the households in Delft about where they were cycling. But more importantly, and more interestingly, was the places they weren't cycling because uh, there were certain pinch points and uh, inaccessible parts of the city. And that's the data, well, qualitative data that they used to ultimately design and build this cycling network was trying to fill those gaps and um, provide people support and the ability to travel to places where they currently weren't traveling. And uh, so I think that may be more interesting than maybe looking at Strava data or, you know, existing car journeys is um, trying to engage with people and find out where they would like to move within their city, but they currently can't because, again, the streets are so hostile or or there's not a public transport service there to get them there and those are the the areas we should be addressing and because the inverse is we're of course widening highways and streets and adding car capacity to places that are already at capacity 
uh, and just making this vicious circle of, of car dependence and car dominance even worse. Yeah, and I know this in itself is a is a huge topic, but do, do you have kind of a short a short answer you like to give people of why that is not the solution? Why just adding more <laughs> lanes and more roads doesn't actually solve the issue? Because it's just wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Eventually, eventually your city will run out of money and run out of space. Yeah. You cannot pave enough asphalt. You cannot widen enough streets. You cannot build enough parking. You will eventually... Uh, and you can't maintain all of those spaces infinitely. Eventually, <laughs> you will run out of time, money, and space. And it's only in the places that have stopped that vicious circle and actually reversed it like they have here in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, they are, again, no, not a car-free uh, society by any stretch of the imagination, but created more diversity, more balance between the various modes of transportation, especially the economically and space efficient modes like walking, cycling and, and public transport and their cities are, well, there's more space for living because there's less space for driving and parking, which is ultimately the end goal. And we're seeing this in cities around the world, like even countless cities in North America that are making this, albeit early, but this shift towards creating spaces that are more about living. So, I, I mean, I have a colleague that lives in Boulder, Colorado, and he shared images of what they're doing there and it's all about creating better public spaces and creating more access for walking and cycling and and shifting narrowing streets to tra calm traffic to make those spaces more livable and this is i mean this counters all those arguments around cold cities around hilly cities i mean mm -hmm. these are places that are not flat like the netherlands and don't have snow they are places with varying climates and they understand the importance and people are flocking to cities like that to live because that's what they want in terms of their quality of life. So the argument against becomes kind of moot when you start looking at, you know, where do people actually want to live and what do they prioritize? And then, mm -hmm. okay, how do we make sure that more cities are like that? So we, you know, help address housing challenges in cities like Vancouver, like Boulder, like Portland, like any other city Austin, like, exactly. like Austin. Yeah. to make sure that you know everyone has that same access to that quality of life and then the transport mm -hmm. networks along with it. So I'm going to want to circle back and go a little deeper here on kind of what modern day or like recent activities have been that have seemed to be going well and what that looks like. But actually, before we get there, it may be interesting. So the Netherlands, right, made a decision and they were a few decades earlier, but they put in an infrastructure in place that makes much more sense for cycling and walking and, and such. What do you highlight? Um, so, so you, so you have some, some great stuff in, in your books about this, but when, how, what would you say they did right? Or can can we talk in a, in a bit kind of even technical detail, like how did they actually for their specific situation put in place an infrastructure that works? I think one of the key things that we always come back to is the traffic calming. It's not about the cycling infrastructure or the wider sidewalks. It's the traffic calming in the neighborhoods. So, you know, we came from a place where we were living on a side street, but still saw so many cars going through. It was designed in such a wide way, even with parking on both sides, that cars could travel. I'm going to get the miles per hour wrong, but like 50, 60, 70 kilometers per hour on this small stretch of road. And here... Those same stretches are narrow. There is minimal parking. They've 
use cobbles to increase the friction, which increases the noise and makes people slow down. They I use chicanes that make people move, you know, from side to side as opposed to one continuous straight line. And there's so many like using raised tables at intersections, all sorts of things that make you slow down when you're in a car, make the driving experience a little more uncomfortable. So make you want to get out of the neighborhoods to move faster as quickly as possible, which creates these communities where, like Chris said, seven, eight year old children can walk to school comfortably and independently. Um, you know, the streets are de facto sidewalks at certain times of the day because there's just not a lot of car traffic because it's been calmed and made inconvenient uh, to move around in a vehicle. So that, to me anyways, has been one of the key ingredients in combination yeah. with the infrastructure. But you, you talk about these ingredients and I think it's important just to take a step back and acknowledge those ingredients didn't exist in a design manual or a, a how-to guide for when the Netherlands first started doing this. And they did a lot of experimentation and innovation and they did a lot of trial and error and they made a lot of mistakes in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 1990s. And it's not until the mid 1990s um, that you get a national standard for cycling infrastructure, for traffic calming, for road safety, um, that all of the municipalities have to follow. And it's only since that period in the mid 1990s that you see the real progress made in terms of safer streets, calmer streets, and getting more people cycling and more cycling infrastructure being built. So it's, I think it, to us, it stresses the importance of getting these principles and best practices codified and summarized in a manual uh, and then having your cities following it, committed to it uh, in terms of its policymaking and infrastructure building process. Um, a lot can be accomplished in a very short period of time here in the Netherlands. You know, it's half of all the cycling infrastructure that exists in this country was built since 1996, which is uh you know a heartbeat in terms of uh the city building timeline but um so it's 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 possible uh but the first step of course is is making the decision that you want to do it and that's where we're seeing some cities taking the lead and moving forward taking leaps ahead and other cities just kind of well being okay with the status quo <laughs> Yeah, and so what? What is and you just touched on this, but I'm going to ask a similar question just to to explore further. So, like, what? I don't know. A, a city has realized they want to make a change, right? They want to make an improvement, but I, I could see pretty easily how someone can convince himself that it's this chicken egg situation, right? Where hey, we need people who want to drive bikes. We need the bike infrastructure. We, um, we, yeah, we have cars going too fast. Like, there's a lot of different variables here. We don't have roads that are that safe, like. And I, I could see how this could be a paradox of choice of such that they just throw up their hands and we're like, hey, we're not sure what to do. Or they pick the wrong thing to start at and then it doesn't go as as expected. So like if if there's someone who and think North Americans, well, I'm biased in, in North America here, but um, you have roads that have been set up right with the traditional way of highways. And then even within cities, you have um, yeah personal use vehicle centric um, motored personal use vehicle centric roads like what's that first step look like or how, how should someone think about that first step i think from a, a traffic planning and engineering standpoint the very first place to start is to look at the network from the bird's eye view what where what do you have now where are the gaps 
Um, and if you want to invest in cycling, how do you connect those gaps to make sure that it's convenient? The reason that people drive to the levels that they do in any city where driving is convenient is because of how easy it is to get from A to B to C to D and so on and so forth with very few obstacles in the way. And one of the key things with walking and cycling that would make people not choose that is because it's uncomfortable, because it's unsafe, because it's not connected, it doesn't get them where they want to go. So if we're if we're walk, talking to a city and they're building, uh, they want to build up for cycling, they have to look at it from a network level. And then you can hone in and figure out, okay, what does that look like depending on the use of the street? What is the function of it? Is it for commuting or is it a neighborhood street? And you have different treatments as a result. But um, in order to get people to walk and cycle and combine that with public transportation, you have to make that convenient and intuitive. Um, and that's really, I think, one of the first steps to getting, you know, yeah. to approaching yeah. cycling is, is looking at it from a very complete picture as opposed to these piecemeal projects that one day may connect to each other, but in the meantime, your usage is going to be low. You get those cases of, or the, the, the excuses that come with that of, well, nobody's using this cycling, so why should we build more? But if it doesn't connect mm -hmm. anything, why would they use it in the first place? And so, that's that's yeah. exactly the chicken and egg scenario that you're describing, Brandon. And that's why we see the disparity between cities that are trying and cities that haven't, because it takes a leap of faith. You're building infrastructure for people who aren't, uh, who don't currently cycle, and and with the hope that people will start cycling once you start building out this network and connecting this infrastructure. But in the meantime, there's going to be short-term pain. <laughs> there's going to be political backlash. There's going to be cries about the war on cars uh, and, and all the irrational nonsense that comes with, you know, reallocating road space um, and inconveniencing cars a little bit that, that happens. But, Every city that that's done this has it's been done on the back of a political champion, and and we can cite, um, well, dozens of examples here in Europe, fewer unfortunately in in the United States and Canada, but but it's happening and it's happening on every continent. It just at this moment in time requires some some vision and leadership, and not every city unfortunately has that. And just to be, be clear on kind of the transformation in the Netherlands. Was this just a success from the gate and everyone was, yeah, this is the, the right way to go and we're all on the, the same page? Or did they have the, the same pushback and people who thought they were missing out on this transformation and the, the, the private uh, motored vehicle? Yeah, if you have an opportunity, there's a documentary online called Together We Cycle uh, that you can rent from Vimeo. Melissa and I are both uh, interviewed in the film, but there's some really amazing archival footage from the 1970s from angry motorists, from angry business owners, from um, the opposition was vehement. Uh, there was examples of death threats uttered at politicians, of protesting business owners who hired contractors to dig out cycle paths in the middle of the night. I mean, uh, this doesn't happen without a fight anywhere ever. And if you're not uh, if you don't have that controversy, then you're not uh, you're not building anything of substance or or impact. So that's kind of our message when we speak to politicians, when we speak to elected officials, is you have to anticipate that this is going to be uncomfortable, 
there's going to be backlash in the media and the community business community and, and elsewhere. Uh, we're seeing it now in 2022, the death threats of politicians in Brussels and, and London and Paris. Um, yeah, tremendous pushback at, at these types of measures. Um, but the fortunate thing is, you know, it's it's yeah. it is largely a, a vocal minority that that kicks up this this stink. And when you get to the other side of the controversy and the, the pushback, um, you start building momentum and creating this tipping point, and and you can really get things accomplished and uh, and and make some significant changes. Yeah, there was a. A great, I had a conversation with someone and they made a great quote and they said, social change is hard because we're not just changing the streets, we're changing behavior. And so it's never going to be easy what we're doing because we are asking people to change how they move and think about moving in a different way. And it's, it's like Chris said, if there's no controversy, if everyone's like, yeah, this is great, go forth. And you're not trying hard enough probably because inevitably somebody is going to be angry. The point is to bring them along and help make, you know, have them be part of the conversation and, you know, hopefully spark some curiosity that starts to see that shift eventually. Um, but, you know, look to examples of the Netherlands, of Montreal and Canada, of Paris nowadays, where these changes happened and it's been for the better and the cities are better for it. Yeah, what's your speaking of a city like Paris? What's your perspective now, looking back at some of the rash decisions that were made in 2020, right? And there was change enacted at a at a pace that probably wouldn't have been possible without the the unique situation from from the pandemic. But where where do you think we look back and say, hey, this here's good proof that if we are able to just make make a change overnight, that this actually works the way uh, we we thought it might have. Yeah, I think Paris is a good example of a city that's that took the opportunity of the crisis that was and still is the pandemic um, to just start making changes. And they've there's still some we were just there a few weeks ago. There's still some learnings to make. But, you know, even before that, with the transition of the motorway along the Seine to be becoming public space. Uh, to starting to have more and more car-free days, to now building out their cycling network. The school streets that have the, been established. The yeah. school streets. These are all steps in the right direction that over time will will have similar, if not greater, um, results than what has been established here in the Netherlands because it is on the scale of a city like Paris where people are just so used to it as a place dominated by cars. There is another mm -hmm. way. But I think it's important to stress, and we again we write about this in the book that COVID was not uh, an opportunity, an opportunity per se. You know, it was a necessity that cities were dealing with a very real challenge that was reduced capacity and attractiveness of their public transport systems. Nobody wanted to ride the trams, trains, and buses anymore, and the fear was that they would, if a fraction of those people jumped in their cars on top of existing traffic, the streets would grind to a smelly, noisy, uh, polluted, uh, congested halt. Mm -hmm. And and so that was the motivating factor. There were, you know, economic studies that were done that just mild, uh, inexpensive uh, interventions to replace some of those public transport trips with walking and e-cycling um, would save 
society and save that that kind of Carmageddon scenario. And so uh, that's why you saw Paris, Bogota, Berlin, uh, our hometown of Vancouver move very quickly to create these pop-up temporary cycle networks is because, well, they, they recognize that their mobility systems lack this resilience and this diversity uh, and that more car traffic on top of existing car traffic is kind of the, the doomsday scenario that, that would really grind their city to a halt. And it's not a coincidence that the Netherlands built very little during the pandemic is because it already had reallocated that space to walking and e-cycling. And so it was actually quite well placed to absorb that lost capacity and weather uh, this, this Corona crisis that other cities were scrambling to try and deal with. That's that's interesting. I had, I don't think I had thought critically about it, but I think if my my initial reaction was that yeah, this was just a, a situation of hey, we let's let's try out cycling and throw it in there. But it makes a lot more sense what you described it of uh, no, this was <laughs> this this was a resilience play and a, a yeah a, a way to try to make it through a difficult situation given the the change of availability for public transportation. Uh, hmm. I don't like. Good. Not unlike the crisis, the oil crisis that happened here in, in 1973 that was, you know, we point to as one of the turning points because it motivated the national government here to start investing in walking and cycling because it saw how fragile and a one-sided car-based transportation system is and susceptible to these outside shocks and interferences. And that's why it started building this more resilient and diversified mobility network that, uh, well, a lot of places around the world they're still working towards. Yeah, so maybe a, a couple closing questions here. So one, you mentioned um, e-bikes. What, what? How do you see the role of the, in, in e-bike in in ecosystem? So I like the like the thing I mentioned. Amsterdam only on vacation have I really experienced <laughs> riding around an e-bike, but I then went twenty some miles through some mountains and was, was cruising. Never really broke a sweat. It seemed like a, for as a commuting type tool, it could be an awesome awesome potential there uh, especially for underserved or yeah, people who have a hard time getting around but like what does that add complexity to the cycling infrastructure of introducing vehicles that then can go faster or heavier or things like that or how, how do you think about the role of the e-bike yeah i mean it certainly does introduce some complexities and there are complexities that actually are part of the conversation here now because um because cycling is so attractive the newer types of cycles and new faster machines are, are also quite attractive for people as an alternative to driving. Um, but <clears throat> I think what we need to be careful of is oftentimes the, the question around e-bikes becomes, well, there's, they're moving so fast and it's less safe. So we need to ban them in some jurisdictions or, you know, we need to put heavy barriers in terms of their use. But what we've found in living here is that the people that use a more traditional pedal assist um, e-bike are using it not as a tool for speed, just a tool for distance and a little more um, longer range. So, I mean, the the elderly population or the senior population here is one of the highest users of e-bikes because it becomes this tool that they can use to get from their home to the center to visit with friends, to stay connected as they age out of being able to drive safely. Um, but they're not going, you know, 
20, 30 miles per hour, they're, they're going the, you know, 10 miles, maybe 15, depending. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we also see that extending to people that are commuting and then getting the faster machines to do more intercity travel or children that live a little bit further away from their high schools will use it as a tool to get to school. And I think that's one thing that we need to remember in this conversation around e-bikes is it's nine times out of 10, it's not about speed. It's just about access and, and keeping people connected. Um, so, you know, yes, you need to adapt your network accordingly. And that means making it a little bit wider so that you can comfortably pass somebody who's moving slower, um, taking away as many conflicts as possible for the people on bicycles. But we have to remember that they're on a cycle. They're not in a car. <laughs> That's what we're all aiming for in this advocacy space. Um, and the, the dangers of a potential conflict between two types of uh, bicycles, be they e-cycles or just a um, human powered one, are far less dangerous than that conflict between an automobile and a person on a bike. It is really interesting to us that the Netherlands, despite the fact that it's flat as a pancake, is the biggest e-bike market per capita in the world. So the, the Dutch have embraced electric bikes more than any other country. And as Melissa indicated, it's not necessarily a speed enhancer. They're only riding them on average two to three kilometers per hour faster, but definitely a range extender. Uh, the average e-bike journey is double, almost double that of a traditional mm -hmm. bike. Um, but it, it comes down to, yeah, having a safe space to ride your bike, having space to park your bike. And now more than ever, economic incentives to buy a bike. So there's tax breaks and subsidies from the national government um, that are now available. And, and we're seeing them in other countries and cities around the world, including in the United States, which is quite exciting. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's replacing car journeys. And, and it, outside the Netherlands, it's removing all of the excuses because we would hear all the time, our city's too spread out, it's too hilly, it's too... Hot, it's too cold, yeah. it's too... <laughs> and and e-bike busts all of those excuses and, and makes it, uh, well, allows us to skip to the part where we build great cycle lanes. And, and as Melissa also has indicated, it comes down to width here. Uh, the national government just updated the uh, guidelines so that a minimum cycle width uh, is 2.3 meters, which is what, eight, nine feet uh, in width for a one-way cycle. Uh, and again, it's to provide that slight difference in speed and mass, especially as we see more cargo bikes, freight bicycles, uh, and other types of, um, of cycles using the cycling infrastructure. But at the end of the day, the e-bike is, uh, well, it's an equalizer and, and it's a win for cities. And, and we're definitely proponents of uh, incentivizing and encouraging their use. They're not cheating. They're not uh, lazy. Lazy. They're not <laughs> dangerous. They are. Uh, they're just a, uh, you know, giving more people access to cycling, which of course, at the end of the day, is a is a good thing. Cool. So yeah, cl closing qu question. So first of all, really appreciate. It. I think this is a uh, great, great to it definitely leave, leave me thinking about a few few topics here and. I, I really enjoyed the conversation, so I appreciate it. Both both of you guys joined. Um, anything you're, you're hoping someone listening to this takes away from the conversation, or I don't know, it, uh, maybe there's some people in in city planning who kind of have direct activity, but m many probably aren't. Um, what what what's kind of a, a takeaway or an action that someone could take to to make a meaningful impact here? 
Um, I'll start. That's okay. <laughs> Please. I think, you know, for those of us that are working in private organizations and in public organizations, city planners, city engineers, uh, politicians, anyone who's working in this transportation space, um, a lot of questions come around, you know, how do we make sure that we're increasing access for everyone? And our message is always talk to them and find out what they need and what they want. It comes back to Chris's statement about, you know, what Dr. Bridget Burdett is studying, you know, what about the trips people don't take? If you never ask somebody, um, you know, ask a person with a visual impairment, you know, what their challenges are, then we're always making assumptions. Asking an, uh, someone over 65 what they need in terms of being able to, to age in place. If we don't ask them, we don't know. We're making assumptions. Same with women, same with children you know, marginalized groups, if we're not speaking to them, we'll never design for them. And so I think if we're talking about making sustainable, inclusive uh, transportation systems, the first place we have to start is talking to the people we want to impact the most. Um, Sorry. Well done. <laughs> now I get to follow that up. Um, no, I think, I mean, one of our messages, key messages is always that it's not, um, a win-lose scenario uh, that it, I think most people approach this topic like it's a zero-sum game, that if we're creating space for walking, cycling, and public transport and taking space away from the car, that ultimately we're disadvantaging, disadvantage, disadvantaging uh, a mode of transportation and making the lives of, of people who drive miserable and um it's just not the case. And if we do this in a mindful and a committed way, um, we're replacing short car trips within the city. We're giving people choices, options, uh, which we would also, I think all agree is a good thing. Um, but we're also making the lives of drivers better because they have less traffic in front of them and, and we're freeing up road space for people who still need to drive in the city in between cities. And so, um, it's not this zero-sum game that that we perhaps think it is. It's not black and white. There's this scenario where we can build a great place for walking, cycling, and also a great place for driving. The Netherlands has incredibly low levels of traffic congestion, and, and it's the product, we would argue, of having those choices and options uh, that are built into their mobility system. So please, um, this isn't a war on cars. This isn't a war on drivers. Uh, this is actually a, a gift to them, uh, ultimately, because there'll be uh, fewer short, unnecessary car journeys happening in front of them in, in, in the city. And, and so uh, all we ultimately want is to make traffic better, but also to give other groups that, that don't have the, uh, the possibility to drive a car access to the city as well. And, and we don't think that's unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good place to leave it. Well, thank you both again. I re really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, wish, wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We'll speak again soon. <laughs> well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Melissa and Chris Bruntlett. So a few, few things that stood out for me. So one, despite the focus on cycling in the, the prominence of cycling within the solutions that are proposed and that are being worked on here, hopefully it's clear cycling is just one piece of the puzzle i think that's it's it's not necessarily the goal the end all be all goal is get more people on bikes it's a bigger discussion we're having here and i think melissa and chris were pretty clear here 
and cycling is one key, very key part, but just one piece of that puzzle, right? Um, the, the other thing that's interesting is how Melissa and Chris, how, how their uh, perspective has changed over time, and especially since they began this work really as true cycling advocates in Vancouver and how that's evolved over time, how even since we talked at the beginning of the pandemic, how they've continued to learn and the experience that they have um, in their respective organizations and the books that they've written, um, working with different people in different countries, different cities around the world to make an impact. And I think it's, it's been cool to hear the journey, or it was cool to hear the journey that they've taken as they've uh, evolved their understanding of these, these topics. And the final thing, I just just to touch home on something again so just kind of by the nature of the work being done with i don't know things that come across my desk is somewhat expensive to some extent the things that are interesting to me a lot of the topics covered on this podcast end up, be, end up being new technology but these topics that we talked about here are so critical and it's something hopefully i can do more of covering on on the podcast but like it's really about what are the decisions that we can be making to really implement, whether it's technology or otherwise, implement solutions that are focused on the outcomes, not just focused on pushing technology, but really on understanding, okay, what is the role of transportation? What is the role, how, how are we making an ecosystem that better serves the people who need it, the people who live there, the people who are visiting, all those things? And then from there, what are the tools in our tool belt with new technology certainly being one of them? What are the tools that we can apply to to address and to, to come up with solutions? And so, if you haven't, uh, yeah, definitely listen around. I think fo- the great follows on um, on LinkedIn, especially Tr- Chris. Check out the books if you had and haven't. Like I said at the beginning, check out episode one of the the Future Mobility Podcast if you haven't seen that one. Um, but yeah, hope, hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed this discussion. As always, really appreciate you listening. This is the last real episode I'm, I'm going to have for uh, for the year here. So thanks for being here for 2022. Looking forward to, to 2023. And uh, as always, more to come next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. If you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of ten to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast.